Welcome to the podcast, Meet My Potential, where Deepa chats with leaders around the world once a week or simply shares her insights. This podcast is for those who aspire to meet their highest inner potential. Each episode brings you one simple tool that you can apply at work or in life. Hello and welcome to this episode on Immunity to Change. We have with us today a very special guest, Lisa Lehe. Lisa is a faculty member of Harvard Graduate School. More specifically, she is the Associate Director of the Change Leadership Group at Harvard. She has worked with numerous corporations. She is the author of many books on change, one of them being Immunity to Change. Welcome, Lisa. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Who better than the author of the book to talk about what is immunity to change? Tell us what it is. Ah, immunity to change. Well, I guess I want to first start off by saying um, that immunities can be overcome. So as you listen to what it is, um, it's going to create a picture where you're going to see why people are stuck. And I just want to say from the outset that an immunity to change is an important thing to see because if we don't see it, we will continue to be stuck. So what is it? An immunity to change is when there's a part of us that wants to move in one direction. So that's a part that's got some kind of important goal, for example. And at the exact same time, there is a part of us that is unconsciously driven to actually accomplish a goal that is in tension with the very important goal we want to accomplish. So what you basically have is a version of a foot on the gas pedal and a foot on the brake at the exact same time, lots of energy going on in that system, basically maintaining the status quo. That's an immunity to change. Excellent. Thank you. I've read your book and I've attended your course. Uh, For the listeners out here, can you give a concrete example? Oh, absolutely. Lots of examples. So (laughs) uh, I just, um, let me think like a one that would be very relevant in the business world that comes up very frequently with people (laughs) who we work with is an intention, a goal to get better at delegating. And There's all kinds of very clear reasons the person can have to want to delegate better, high motivation, in other words. Uh, So that's the foot on the gas, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And at the exact same time, the person may have a commitment to, for example, uh, not losing status or not becoming somebody who is going to be um, uh, no longer the go-to person or a person fearing that they're going to suddenly have to deal with difficult conversations because the people who they delegate to aren't going to be able to accomplish, uh, you know, meet the standard that they have and that they're protecting themselves from having difficult conversations. So it's a perfect example of somebody who wants to definitely make headway, be a better leader in the following ways of being a better delegator. And at the exact same time, not wanting to, Uh, give up the self-protection mechanisms that basically allow the person to feel like they can feel good in their work setting. Got it. Great. Thank you for the wonderful example. And to go a bit further from individuals to teams, how do teams develop immunity to change? 
Well, teams develop immunities to change because you've got, firstly, individuals who are on the team. Um, well, let me say it better this way. Teams mm -hmm. will have immunities to change, and you know it the same way you know an individual has an immunity to change, which is you can have a team that's highly motivated to shift how it's acting, and despite its best intentions, it's basically not shifting in any consistent, reliable way. So that tells you there's immunity to change, and there can be immunities to change around all kinds of uh, team issues, one of the most common ones that teams face is to be able to be more coordinated or more um, like collaborative with, with, with one another. Mm -hmm. And inevitably, you find in these teams that when they really face into what's the energy that the whole team is putting on the break, you come to see that it's often things that have to do with the team wanting to preserve all the goodies that come from more operating in a siloed way and people having their own hat on, so to speak, for taking care of their own portion of the business. So yes, they get on the one hand, it's going to be in the organization's best interest if they can co collaborate more. And on the other hand, people are protecting what they already have, which is the the goodies that come from them getting uh, high profile from their individual performances. So those are in tension with each other. And if people don't see that's what's going on, they will continue to put a lot of energy into trying to make the changes with technical uh, kind of adaptations that won't really be able to stick. Excellent. That's a fantastic example. I do see teams being stuck in this foot on the brake uh, and trying to press the accelerator time at the same time where teams give themselves objectives and they're kind of also hard on themselves saying that, mm, I don't think it's possible to achieve this objective with this team. It's subconscious. They don't see that they have an immunity. Yes. Right. And so actually what you're raising brings up this general question, which is, is it better to look to develop the people on your team so that you can actually get there? Or is it better to bring somebody in from outside who, quote unquote, is coming in with certain sorts of qualifications? And from an immunity to change perspective, it would be really important before you made the, went through all of the whatever it takes to bring somebody new on board to take a look at what might be getting in the way that is of this more psychological uh, quality and let a team do an immunity to change map and bring the undiscussables out into the open, air them and allow people to see there actually is a way they can move forward more often than not with the people who are around the table as if they would be more open to recognizing the sort of change we're asking one another to make is actually not so straightforward. It's not just one of these, if you've got the willpower and the clear motivation, any of us can do it. And I think that's probably the biggest lesson to me in all of the work that I've done over these years, which is people all too often underestimate how much energy any one of us 
is unconsciously um, putting into keeping things a status quo. Change is actually very challenging, especially when it involves losses of some sort, losses of the ways we like to see ourselves in our work setting. Right. Uh, fantastic. Very often we beat ourselves to say that I haven't been able to make that change. My team is not able to make that change. We challenge our willpower. We challenge our motivation and we don't see that there is an underlying immunity and that we are hanging on to something that is so precious to us. Right. That's right. And so when we don't recognize that's actually the root cause of why it's so challenging to change, we get into these very difficult, um, I think, kind of self-talk with ourselves, like, mm -hmm. oh, I'm a loser, I, I can't do this. And I think that's also what happens when we look at other people and we make attributions that we can't really count on them. They didn't mean it when they said they were going to really try to, you know, be a partner with me on this or whatever it is. And I think all those kinds of very harsh judgments come from our misunderstanding that certain kinds of change really are very hard to make. And actually, if we could acknowledge that, we can start being much more intentional about how we approach the change differently and much more generous towards ourselves. that actually it takes time to do this and it takes time for good reasons because we're disassembling basically ways that we protect ourselves. That's a really hard thing to do. So that's why they are so precious to us and, and we need to take care. Excellent. Thank you very much for that insight. Moving further up the chain, what challenges do organizations face when they're going through transformations? Well, there's lots that I could say, but, <laughs> but the one that I would say I, my work keeps taking me back to is that I think organizations, and I think this is true at every level, um, organization to the team, to the individual, is that we, we mistake these more adaptive challenges, these really difficult, more in, well, <laughs> How do, how do I say this? I, I, I want to just recognize that change has got so many different dimensions to it. And we all often tend to go to the easiest solution set. And that solution set tends to be the more technical kinds of things that we can do. Can we, you know, shift what kind of IT we're using, for example, so that we can reach more people more effectively. Sure, we can do that. And then if we don't think about what are the requirements for the individual users uh, as, as people who are trying to actually execute on this new more technical thing, if we don't ask that question, we've now lost all the potential for that technical solution to actually take hold because now we're asking people to change. And I think that's really um, what is probably one of the most substantial uh, uh, kind of misdiagnoses that get in the way is that it is actually quite challenging for people to change if we don't provide appropriate kind of scope and conditions for them to make these inner changes that you and I have just been talking about. 
Right, right. So there needs to be very clearly an adaptive timeline, a timeline to, for people to discover their immunities, a timeline for people to make the behavioral change and the mindset shift happen. Yes, that's right. So that is, um, I think you're underscoring the point of all of this, which is that if we don't see that there's an adaptive dimension, we'll just go at the work in this more technical way. And technical, while it's very, very important, and I, I don't mean to say it's not, uh, but technical tends to be the kind of thing that we can say, all right, we're going to have a workshop and you know, in three hours time, we're going to learn the skills of delegating, for example. Okay, if, if the problem for me is that I never learned how to delegate, that three-hour workshop is going to be very important for me. But if I actually have an adaptive dimension that's also going on at the same time, like, okay, there's a part of me that is afraid I am going to lose my standing in the organization. I'm no longer going to be the go-to person if other people can do this. I'll, I'll no longer be indispensable. Well, th that three-hour workshop is actually not even going to touch on that sort of thing. And no matter how much skill I have, I can't put it to use. If I'm afraid in the process of doing that, I'll start <laughs> becoming indispensable. You know, and, and that's when that sets up that whole very difficult dynamic of, oh, I really want to delegate. I see I'm not. Now I feel badly about myself and now I go in a downward spiral. That's not very productive either. So I think that is one of the biggest errors that um, that organizations make is just not making enough room for genuinely the human dimension of loss that is involved in change work. What kind of room is required for organizations to pay more attention to the human dimension? Mm -hmm. I think one kind of um, change that's needed is for there to literally be more time for people <laughs> to take this sort of stuff on and more continuity. So if we use as an example um, the idea that we are now paying attention to the adaptive dimension and say, I've begun to recognize that, uh, well, let me give you a, an example that's also quite common in organizations of people being more honest and candid with each other. Mm -hmm. Everybody knows that's the right thing to do. It's better to have the real conversation happening in the room when a decision is being made than it is to go out into the, you know, the water cooler and have that conversation there about what's wrong with the decision that got made and so on. So when you ask people to be more honest with each other um, and to give people more clear feedback in the moment, people will say, yes, I want to do that. Mm -hmm. And I, I really believe people do want to do that. And yet what we also know is if people aren't given permission to recognize that there's a part of them that is absolutely petrified of giving other people real-time feedback because for many people, they don't want to hurt other people's feelings. There's a lot of different kind of um, uh, what we call hidden commitments that may be involved in this, but most often it is because we worry that if we actually said what was on our mind to people in real time and gave them that real feedback, uh -huh. we would 
hurt the relationship. And then we've got all kinds of theories about what would happen if we hurt the relationship, that person's no longer going to want to work with me and all kinds of things, bad things are going to happen. Well, if, if we make time for me to realize that's actually what's making it hard for me to give real-time feedback, I could then be participating in a meeting where when I start that meeting, and I know we're going to be in the midst of making having a discussion and we're going to make a hard decision, I can remind myself, this is a thing I'm working on. I'm working on giving real-time feedback, and I know that the thing that's going to hold me back is not wanting to hurt someone. So I'm going to actually test my assumption that if I share what I'm really thinking, I'm going to hurt you. And that's what my work in the meeting will in partly be tuning into. I'm going to be tuning into listening to how other people are talking to each other. And I think, wow, that person just told, you know, my neighbor here, Uh, just gave some difficult feedback and that person next to me is listening and that person is seems to be actually accepting this that's really good information to me that's helping me begin to change my mindset about how hard it is to give somebody real feedback because they're going to you know hurt the relationship now i might be willing to then make a little test or put my toe out there in this meeting mm-hmm. and say okay i agree with that and here's why i agree with that and then i'm going to look to see what does this person next to me how do they respond how do they respond in real time and i begin to track that so what what i'm saying is in some respects that time that is in the meeting, you literally haven't added more time to the meeting, but you have now created a space in that meeting where you basically are saying to everybody, come on, we're all looking to be more straightforward with one another. Let's engage the uh, immunities in a productive way here where we begin to test our mindset. And then maybe we'll save 10 minutes at the end of the meeting, maybe even five minutes and say, how did we all do? And um, I've often am working in meetings where I'll say to people at the end of a meeting, let's do a check around your level of candor with each other. How did you feel that went? And people can basically be saying, you know, here's where I am on, on some kind of a scale of one to 10, and then be looking at What part of me held me back from being able to get to the number I wanted? Or what part of me actually did I begin to test and work new muscles that allowed me to do it in this more productive way? That would be an example of a way you can be expanding the opportunities to do that inner work in real time. Excellent. That makes absolute sense. Um, So that's a very good example for an individual to go past their own immunity. How can one make their inner immunity goals more visible to others? How easy or how difficult rather it is for people to share their development goals? Yeah, I think that's a great question. And it goes to the heart of why we... Uh, after we wrote the book Immunity to Change, the next book we wrote is called An Everyone Culture, which is about deliberately developmental organizations. Mm-hmm. Because it's actually quite hard as an individual 
in most cultures, uh, organizational cultures, to say to a team member, here's the thing I'm working on. I want you to know that. And not only do I want you to know that the goal I'm working on, for example, is being more transparent, but I'm working on more of the what's going on inside of me around my belief system of how I'm going to damage relationships if I'm really being more honest. That's mm-hmm. a really hard thing to say. You could, however, have an organization, which is what we profile in, our, in the book and everyone culture, an organization that itself has a culture dedicated to being able to cultivate everybody's development, in which case every single person who's a part of the organization has signed on to an explicit norm that says, I am here to keep developing and here to keep also developing other people. So on behalf of this really as a kind of a strategy for how our organization is going to thrive, every single one of us knows what one another is working on, both at that, you know, that upfront level of here's the goal I'm working on, but also the deeper internal work that we're up to. And when that's the case, it's as if we've all shaken hands to say, hey, come on, we're all human. Everybody's growing. We each need to keep uh, supporting one another in this. And so the way we do our work will always be tapping into that channel while we're doing the work itself. So in a culture that dedicates itself to one another's development, you're always doing the, the work of the, the organization itself. But you, you keep touching in on how are we doing with our individual development goals as we do our work together? So that would be um, illustrated in some of these organizations where they literally are leaving time at the end of a meeting to do a, a kind of an after action review on how did this meeting go? Did we accomplish what we set out to where we did not accomplish it? What country, contributed to that? What was each one of our individual contributions to that? In what ways does that map onto the things we're working in our immunities where we did succeed? How is that evidence of our outgrowing some of our immunities? That kind of a thing. So they are, they're actually tracking how some of this stuff is shifting inside and how it is moving the needle on the dial around the actual work that the team or the organization is up to. Right. This helps not only individuals, not only teams, but the entire organization to go past their immunity. Because if everybody puts their development goal out there openly, then we know that the whole organization is developing oneself and it's much more easier to go past immunity. Exactly. We have a a phrase that um, very quickly takes us... uh, um, takes us into this world, which is in most organizations that are not developmentally oriented. We say everybody is working a second job, mm-hmm. and they, that second job is basically looking good, and that the amount of energy people expend so that they can manage p- other people's favorable impressions of them is enormous. By contrast, when you are in a deliberately developmental organization, everybody's basically saying, 
we're dropping that need to look good. And if there's anything about looking good, it's basically like demonstrating we're working on developing. We are human. We all need to keep stretching and growing. And that's especially true, I would say, in these days, which you know, I think we'd all agree are unprecedented times living with the, the pace of change in this, you know, this VUCA world that we're in. None of us can afford our organizations to have energy that's being siphoned off by people who are basically trying to keep managing their, their looking good. Exactly. I can see a lot of uh, examples of senior managers who have coached who are spending a lot of energy trying to look good, trying to hide their mistakes or playing organizational politics. Yeah, that's that's exactly right. And so the more that happens, especially at the leadership level, as you're describing, the more the people within the organization read that message because as we know the actions speak louder than words so as much as the organization may espouse of course you know uh, we're entrepreneurial here you've got to you know make mistakes uh, make them fast fail forward that kind of thing the reality is that if other people in in leadership positions are doing versions of covering Everybody gets that's what's going on, and then they basically just follow suit and play it safe. Excellent. Thank you very much for sharing that. Can you give one recommendation? I know you've spoken about immunity change and how people can apply it. Can you give one recommendation for teams and organizations to step further and make change a success? You mean beyond thinking about how to use the immunity to change in that? Um, I know immunity change and becoming a deliberately development organization is a long process, does require time. What is one thing that people can do without getting into the immunity change process? Uh-huh. Yeah. So I would say that um, one of the most valuable potential techniques is around giving and receiving feedback. And I say potential because there are a lot of ways it could actually be um, ill-used or misused. Uh But when it's being used in the spirit of helping one another to really develop, um, I think that could be enormously valuable. And you don't have to go through the immunity to change process for people to be able to say to one another, here's the thing I know I need to get better at. And and to be able to share that. And I know there's a level of vulnerability around people saying what they need to get better at, but mm-hmm. everybody knows that, you know, that there's something everybody's working on. And if there's some way people could be very oriented towards, hey, I know what you're working on, and I'm going to give you some feedback uh, based on what it is that I've just observed that lets you know, here's how I experienced what you just did that is either giving you the positive feedback, which is often a very underutilized um, Mm -hmm. 
uh, gift to people to, to see that actually I see you were very clear in what you were trying to communicate here. And here's what I got from that. And here's what I appreciated from that. And also to be able to say, and here's a place where I think you could have been clearer. So you're giving feedback that's quite specific to what the person is working on. Um, I would say that that is really quite a gift. And I think it's different from very often when people give feedback, they're giving feedback that's based on their own idiosyncratic preferences and their beliefs about what the other person needs to get better at. And so I'm suggesting a shift in thinking about turn to what the person him or herself him or herself knows that they need to get better at and orient your, your feedback in that way. Excellent. Thank you very much. And before you go, one last message to the audience. Would you like to say something? Hmm. Well, yes. Yeah. So I'd like to say, yes, change is hard. And that the better we understand that it is hard for very good reasons and we understand those reasons and we can embrace those reasons and really create the conditions for people to take on that deeper level of, of change, I think we will all be enormously well served by feeling more alive ourselves and, and and collectively, and I, I know that we are better able to deliver on the things that we devote our lives to when we are able to grow in these ways. Thank you very much, Lisa, for that. It's been a pleasure to learn from you. Thank you once again for being here with us. My pleasure. Thanks so much. We hope you enjoyed the podcast. If you'd like to know more how you can meet your potential, check out www.meetmypotential.com. That's www.meetmypotential.com. Join us again. And until then, stay cool.